Britain feels broken, but how do we fix it? Westminster just doesn't seem to have the answers, but we have found some people who do. Join me, journalist Becca Hudson, and me, the former MP Ed Vasey, for How I'd Fix. From the price of a pint to the housing crisis, this is the show where we take an alternative look at the problems plaguing the nation. And hear practical solutions from those in the know. Catch new episodes of How I'd Fix wherever you get your podcasts. Rebuilding Britain starts here. Good evening and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. You're with Talk, we're on TV, we're on radio, we're online and we're on your smart speaker as well. Coming up, Rishi Sunak wins his vote on his crucial Rwanda bill with a majority of 44 that the Labour leaders downplayed the policy today calling the Rwanda plan a mere gimmick. Plus, Drew Barrymore employs a creepy new interviewing tactic getting handsy with Oprah. Good evening, Britain and the rest of the world, because tonight on the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, we're going to be telling you an awful lot of things that might matter to you. Uh, the Tories live to fight another day. Rishi Sunak survives another vote of no confidence, and the country gets to look away once more as our parliamentarians obsess about something which most of us couldn't care less about. I don't mean that no one cares about immigration. I don't mean that no one cares about controlling our own borders. And I don't mean that people are ambiguous about millions more living in this country now than there used to be. But what I do mean is that the Rwanda plan and all of its variations is not front and centre of anyone's thoughts because anyone sensible knows that even if it was to work, it wouldn't solve any of our immigration difficulties. Tory MP Nick Fletcher made those difficulties abundantly clear in Parliament shortly before the vote today. I said it before and I'll say it again. Doncaster is full. Now, I often get challenged, like just opposite, like I often get challenged as a Christian when I say Doncaster is full. I don't think it's Christian when my constituents are having to put up with immigration at the levels that they are. Because, I'm sorry, you're burying your head in your sands, trying to make yourselves look good in front of people to get votes. But this is happening, and it's happening in Doncaster, and it's happening in places throughout this country, and we are turning parts of our community into a ghetto. He's not wrong. And it looks as though the new year will start just as inauspiciously and with just as many rows and divisions as the old one ends. Rishi Sunak might as well take the A out of his name because he is now well and truly sunk. We launch ourselves today at the show uh, and it's very obvious that we are entering 2019 territory. The Prime Minister is taking us back to the future and it's not going to be great. At the end of 2019, Boris Johnson actually did lead the Tories into a massive election victory as he promised to end the stalemate in Westminster and get Brexit done properly. At the end of 2024, there is no such potential promise. And unless Rishi Sunak has got some very impressive rabbits and some pretty fancy hats, he's not going to reach the same outcome. And it's more than likely to be a very unhappy new year for everyone. All we can do now is put our trust in Sir Keir Starmer, the snake charmer, who seems to all, uh, all he has to do is not recreate a psychodrama. And if only that were true. Tonight we're going to examine just exactly what is going to happen in the coming months, just how soon can we have an election, and what it will be like for all of us to live in this country for the next two years. Because I'm sorry to say Britain has become a country full of pickpockets, illegal migrants, foreign students, immigrant workers and billionaire shysters. Is Labour really to be believed when they talk about getting Britain back to where it was? And what do they even mean by that? We've also got the latest from the California grifters, Harry and Meghan, and we'll be telling you why there's no point going vegan. It won't even save the planet. Official. This is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Let's do it.
In a Labour speech today, Keir Starmer said the government is wrong to be obsessing over immigration. I don't think he's right. But you can get in touch with the show on all the socials at Talk TV and on the phones 0344 499 1000. Calls will cost the standard national rate. The Rwanda results are in. The eyes to the right, 313. The nose to the left, 269. So the eyes have it, the eyes have it unlocked. The eyes may have it, but does anybody want it? Let's go straight to Talk TV's chief political commentator, Peter Cardwell, who's on the scene in Westminster. Peter, very good evening to you. Hi, Mike. So, um, a day of drama, a night of drama. Um, it looked as though he was going to make it over the line, and he may, may, may more or less has done that, but uh, it's not clear whether it's actually any good for Rishi Sunak to be in this position because he's being threatened with people saying they need to make amendments and he's also being threatened by people saying that if there are any amendments, they'll vote it down. Yes, indeed. I think he's storing up problems for the new year, but he will get through Christmas. 44 majority, probably 29 Conservative MPs who abstained on this. And interestingly, here are the numbers. The government's working majority is 56. So it would take actually 29 MPs if they voted against the government to turn this over in future bits of the legislative process. Interestingly, not a single Conservative voted against this, so there's a lot of bluff and bluster and noise over the past day and a half or so about this, about how this vote may go. But actually, Rishi Sunak is home. He's home relatively comfortably. The question is what happens now, because people are asking, are there amendments coming? Are there changes that he has agreed? Are there people who have been made promises? And actually, if you look at the divisions in the Conservative Party, this vote may well have been won by Rishi Sunak, but a lot of those divisions continue because you've got the One Nation group on the centre, the centrist, the sort of left of the Conservative Party, if such a thing exists, who are saying no changes, minor changes are fine. But then you've got the five families, those subgroups within the Conservatives, about another 100 MPs or so on the right of the party, who are saying actually substantial changes needed in committee stage, in the bits of the legislative process where changes can be made, in further readings later on. So really, Rishi Sunak lives to fight another day, and he's got through this, but at the same time there are many, many problems that are going to be in the next uh, month or so, certainly in early January. I spoke to uh, someone who is very, very close to James Cleverley a little earlier this evening. She said there's not triumphalism, simply relief in terms of what has happened. And I talked to one MP who's sort of behind a lot of this in one of those groups on the right, right of the Conservative Party. And he said, look, who knows what happens in the new year? Yeah, I think that's about as good as you can get out of uh, looking into the looking glass there. Uh, let's join now political editor of the... Uh, sorry, deputy political editor of the Sun and Ryan Saving, journalist and uh, broadcaster Emma Wolfe. Good evening to both of you. I mean, to me, to bring a football analogy in, it feels like a nil-nil draw scraped at home against a pretty good team and the next leg's away. Yeah, uh, Rishi Sunak has, has, has won the day in as much that he's got through... He's got through the day um, and he'll take it to, to January where he'll bring the legislation back and there'll be potentially some, uh, there will be some amendments put through by those uh, rebels and uh, he'll just have to try and make sure that um, he does what they, does what they, you know, try and do what they say. Yeah. Maybe. I don't, it's going to be, it's going to be tough for him. Um, yeah. He can only go so far with those uh, right-wing rebels because if he doesn't, you've got those MPs on the left well, side like of the party. It's like a pincer movement, isn't it? Exactly. And don't forget, on the, on the you know, it's sort of three-dimensional here, you've got Rwanda who will only go so mm. far as well. So if one goes out of kilter, 
So does the other, yeah. and the whole thing collapses. Yeah. And Emma, just before I come to you, because um, I know mean, Peter's got a rush. Peter, let me just ask you one more question. I mean, while we wait for all of this to kind of pan out in the new year, there'll be several hundred, possibly several thousand more migrants coming illegally on the small boats in between, right? Yes, that's right, Mike. I mean, obviously, it's pretty cold, and there are probably, uh, well, there haven't been as many crossings in the last little while as there have. But if you get a sunny day, well, that is the time when migrants may well come across the, on the boats. And the key date is not just the early part of New Year and January and February and when the next reading of this bill comes, but also, actually, the 4th of January, when Rishi Sunak made that speech way back on the 4th of January in 2023, 4th of January 2024, he said, judge me on my record. In a year's time, I'm going to stop the boats. Well, they're perhaps down by a third, and that is better than some other European nations. But at the same time, there's still quite a lot of them. There are lots of migrants coming over. There are many people caught on the backlog. And actually, this isn't just about the 500 or so people that might eventually end up in Rwanda. It's actually about the tens of thousands of people who are caught in the backlog who aren't even processed yet. So many, many problems for Rishi Sunak and for James Cleverley, the Home Secretary. Absolutely. Peter, thanks very much indeed. Peter Cardwell, reporting from Westminster. Emma, um, it's a real shambles, this, because it seems to me that even if the Conservatives do obsess about it continuously between now and January, um, other people are not obsessing about it and everyone's going, well, it won't work anyway. Well, you see I'm wearing true blue for... I'm in mourning for when the Conservative Party used to be vaguely yes. credible. Yes. Not even a great party. Yeah. Been, I mean, that's been years, but just vaguely yeah. credible. Because they're now looking at this as if it's some kind of victory. I mean, this is a joke. And Ryan talks about the pincer movement, and if you move one way, you're stuck. And none of this is dealing with the actual issue, no. which is, as you say, what people do care about mm. is immigration. None of this is dealing with that. Right. You know, the Rwanda plan has a, is a joke. No one is thinking about the amendments or no. how, you know, the, the, the point is the Prime Minister's authority is completely shot. Mm. Uh, Rishi Sunak looks weaker than ever. The farce of, you know, flying that, was it the, uh, the climate change minister? Yes. Thousands of miles back from COP. Right. It just, it's been very, very badly mishandled. Mm. I mean, if Sunak was in a bad position a few weeks ago with the Suella Braverman yeah. fun and games, he's in an even weaker position now. And all now. of this, it seems to me, is so unnecessary because the only reason he's at this point is because he created it for himself. He swore He didn't the... even invent this no. plan. He could have no. just shelved it, he quietly could have shelved it, started off with a new piece of paper and come up with something else. Yeah. Or even nothing at all. Right. Nothing because at all would have been better. He's been talking to some five-year-olds or something because, first of all, he expected clearly uh, for the Supreme Court to just rubber stamp it and say it was fine. Then they caught him off guard by saying, no, sorry, you can't do it. Then he decided to inter uh, interview or interpret some new legislation, emergency legislation, which is what this now is, uh, which is clearly badly drafted. He hasn't spoken to anybody before he did it. And now he's up... I don't want to say it, uh, the creek without a paddle. Without a paddle. I should have said it because that's where he is. You go back to a year ago when he made that speech, he should have said... You know, I'm going to reduce the boats. I'm yeah. going to reduce the number. Right. And he could be claiming quite right. a decent victory now. Yeah. He, he talks about um, that those who came over from Albania is down by 90%, trying to set up returns agreements. So actually, this could have been a partial yeah. victory. Instead, by saying stop, you're yeah. probably no one is probably ever yeah. going to stop the boats. So this is where he's got into trouble. Right. He could be spending so much political energy mm. and capital on this. Um, you had the Home Secretary, James Cleverly, say this is, Rwanda is not the be-all and end-all. Rishi Sunak saying um, this is not the silver bullet. Yeah. So why put so much yes. energy into it? Well, this is it. I was talking to Bob Seeley the other night, and he wants to see a, you know, a new parliament 
with people who don't make promises they can't keep. Mm. And I know it's all a bit late, but I always quite like Bob Seale. I think he's quite down to earth. And he said, look, you know, Rishi Sunak has continually made these promises, which, as Brian says, he's never going to be able to keep. If he had said, look, we can't stop the boats because there's a massive business going on, which is run by very evil and horrible people traffickers who are worse than drug dealers, who will shoot people and kill them and watch them die uh, in the sea rather than stop doing what they're doing, we'll be doing very well if we can reduce it by a third. And then he'd be sitting here going, Merry Christmas, Trebles all round. We'll give you some tax breaks in the new year. And also, the boats aren't just... The, I know they're the visible problem, but they're not the real issue here. We're talking about, you know, legal migration of yeah, over yeah. 700,000. That's what people are really stressed about when yeah. they talk about the pressures on our, on our public services. Mm. Or he could have said something else, like, I'm going to sit down and quietly deal with the backlog. I'm going to put loads of resources behind that. Yeah. He could have come up with a different approach, as you say. I don't think a five-year-old would have come up with this. Maybe a five-month-old, but not, yeah. not even. It is extraordinary, isn't it? So, I mean, we've now got these factions, and it is very Brexit-like, isn't it? it I mean, is. I remember seeing my son, Mark Francois, popping up on our screens yesterday, and I thought, blimey, I haven't seen him since yeah, 2019. Exactly. Yeah. And also, one has, haven't. Yeah. And Mike, one has even less respect for them, because they didn't even vote against it. No. They just abstained, so one feels even less kind of willingness to yeah. vote for these MPs that have zero principles. Because they've bought a promise, haven't they, that they'll get heard and listened to in the New Year. Yeah, because they're they worried about self-preservation. They can always pull it off to the next moment, and that mm. moment is going to be in January. But it's going to be interesting if you know the government have got to feel confident if they bring that legislation back, because what they don't want is that that bill being voted down yeah. at third reading, because then the next day Labour will put down a vote of no confidence. But you've got to ask, what is the ulterior motive right. of these? these so-called rebels, is it to sort of quietly get rid of Rishi Sunak and sort of completely sort of kill his authority um, and maybe try and replace him as leader? I mean, that is for the birds, Well, he doesn't seem to have any authority anymore, as you said. I mean, he doesn't doesn't command anybody inside the party. Even threats that they were going to pull the whip from some of them didn't seem to to, to worry anybody because I think they're in such a bad state, Emma, as you say, that, you know, it's almost like you're clinging to the hulk of a ship that's going down. Why would you listen to the captain? Party discipline just seems right. to be completely absent. Mm. And in, in comparison, the Labour Party seems quite united at the moment and quite sort of well-behaved, doesn't it? I think I mean, that's partly because none of them are saying very much. No, they're not saying much at all. They you know, still haven't got any answer because to what they would it, do. The last time they were put under threat of sort of, you know, party discipline, it was over the ceasefire vote. Yeah. And they couldn't really handle that very well. So, so you know... No, you're right, and that is more recent, but it feels yeah. like many, many months ago, doesn't yeah. it? But on these rebels, it feels like they've been played a little, mm. little bit. Danny Kruger, oh, I can't vote for this bill. Robert Jenrick yeah. over the airwaves over the weekend, talking, you know, talking against the bill. And they've abstained. No one's actually voted against mm. it. She had all these abstentions, but no one's actually sort of walked in the division yeah. lobby with Labour. And when it comes to third, it takes a big thing. And it's a, MPs take it very, very seriously going in that division lobby mm. again. You know, you've got a lot of pressure from the whips, a lot of pressure from your colleagues. Yeah. And to walk in with Labour, it's a, it's a big thing and they don't like doing it. Yeah, I mean, your colleague Harry Cole's been tweeting tonight about various pairings that might have been going on. So have there been deals done that's outside of Rwanda, do you think? I mean, I'm not just saying, you know, this is what we'll do come January when the bill's up for a third reading. But have other promises been made? It feels like to get some of them over the line in as much as they would abstain. Yeah. You feel like some language, when they met with Rishi Sunak this morning, that some language may have just given them sort of entertainment to, to get through to January. He talks that Rishi Sunak talked about tight, tightening up the bill yeah. and maybe going that little bit further and just sort of tying up some loose ends. I don't think it's going to be sort of major surgery right. on that legislation, but it might just be enough. But again, mm. as we keep saying, once it goes one way with the, the right wing, yeah. 
the other side will just yeah. uh, cause havoc. Also, Emma, we've seen this time and time again, haven't we? You know, there are a lot, many lawyers already picking apart the bill. There's already plenty of lawyers who are willing to say that it won't work. Therefore, I don't think they can possibly tighten the bill to the point where they say, oh, this will make the loopholes smaller or this will make the number of challenges that's less. Why it's so How can you do it? That's why it's so reminiscent of Brexit. Yeah. All these kind of really quite technical issues, yeah. the whole Northern Ireland issue right. you know, borders down the channel, that kind of thing. Mm. That's why I think we're kind of reminded of all that. But I'm losing track of how how many different factions there are within this one party. It's quite normal now that we've, we're talking about the five families, the new conservatives, the one nation group, yeah. obviously the ERG. I mean, I know they're all kind of subsections. It, it doesn't even feel like one party no. anymore. But I mean, also, it must have been a really they, good they breakfast. actually think they are in a Godfather movie, these bozos, yeah. you know, all the five families. Oh, that'll make people think that? that we're really, really evil and nasty. We might come around and knock on the door in the middle of the night and knock you over. I mean, it's a bit pathetic. I think if you feel like you may lose an election, <laughs> This is this could be their last moment yeah. in the sun, yeah. almost. Well, like the Adams family. Yeah. Well, years. according to William Hague, they're never going to come back. You know, the Conservatives could yeah. be forever cast well, out. Well, it tells the... you everything you need to know, though, about the uh, the state of the Tory party, that William Hague is considered to be an elder yeah. statesman. Yeah. You know, I know he's one of our colleagues in this building on Times Radio. I mean, his reign wasn't exactly supreme, was it? Well, he was talking this morning about whether the Conservative will party ever will ever come back into government. Yeah, government. well, we can actually hear him. Have a, let's have a listen to what he said. I have to tell them this is not a satisfying experience. It's not it's not how you want to spend a large part of your uh, professional lifetime. So um, so they might be thinking about it, but most of them can't remember it or have never known it. And um, it's much tougher. And there's no guarantee of ever coming back. You know, the conservatives have come back every time in the past for 200 years. But no guarantee politics will change a lot over the next 20, 30 years. The world will change a lot. And you're just stepping off that change in the world and becoming a spectator at a crucial time if you go into opposition. Well, there, 20 or 30 years from now, there'll be about 100 million people living yeah. in Britain, I should think, by the way things are going. Um, guys, when we come back, I want you to go away and think about the Reform Party statement earlier this week, who said, we're going to destroy the Tory party. It's not going to exist after the next election. So that's one to think about. Um, Emma, thank you very much indeed. Ryan, we'll see you later. Uh, we've got more coming up. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Nigel Farage has already slammed around the bill, calling it the new Brexit divide. And after an asylum seeker takes their own life, supposedly, on the Bibby Stockholm, does this throw the future use of the barge into doubt. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Rishi Sunak's Rwanda bill may have made its way through the stage uh, in the Commons tonight, but it didn't come easy. Many factions on the right of the party, such as the European Research Group and the New Conservatives, think the proposal doesn't go far enough. Joining me now to discuss the ongoing Rwanda row is the Reform Party's Rupert Lowe and Barrister Stephen Barrett. Very good evening uh, to both of you. Uh, Rupert, let me start with you. Uh, you and I share a kind of common disgust uh, with the way that this party called the Conservatives has become so unconservative that they can't even work out how to stop migration coming here when it's unwanted. Um, but this whole scenario is a complete and utter shambles, isn't it? Um, good evening, Mike. Uh, always a pleasure to be on your show. Um, I wonder how your vampire slot is going. Hopefully well Very for Very well you. indeed, thank you. Very much enjoyable. Um, well, my, my view on this is quite straightforward. I, I mean, isn't it disappointing that the right wing of the Tory party has basically abstained, yeah. being made a lot of noise and kicked the can down the road? This is going to return in the new year, this problem. 
Uh, it's quite clear to me that the Tories are, are just going to cling on in the hope that something's going to happen over the next nine months. I think the likely election date is October myself. Some people say May. So they're going to cling on and they're going to hope that something happens. But I'm in the Braverman and the Generic camp now. If you're going to do a job, you've got to do it properly. And if you're going to make this uh, Rwanda plan work, having spent a quarter of a billion pounds of taxpayers' money, You've got to do it properly and you've got to disapply enough of the Human Rights Act to ensure that the migrants don't challenge uh, the, the, the flights taking off. So uh, for me, it's got to be done properly or not at all. Uh, we saw, and I think this is turning into a national emergency now, I think, I think this immigration is actually damaging the structure of Britain. It's yeah. damaging the interests of the British people. A sovereign parliament should be putting the interests of the British people at the top of their agenda. Uh, let's face it, when we had COVID, Mike, uh, they locked us down. They, they rode roughshod over what uh, what normally should happen in Parliament. They wasted £36 billion on test and trace, countless amounts of billions on PPE procurement. I think they're still paying for a lot of storage of the deficient equipment that they bought, uh, not to mention what they've wasted on HS2. So yeah. That HMRC can then go and hunt down legal, honest, decent British businesses and destroy all their long-term investment plans. So I, I think this is a national emergency. I think, you know, if you want to look at an example of the ineptitude of the civil service, you only have to look at this this chap, um, you know, who answered to Lee Anderson uh, the other day. Oh, God. But, you know, ultimately he was called, I think he was called, I've got his name here, he was called Simon Ridley, a senior civil servant. Yeah. Uh, who admitted that they didn't know the whereabouts of 17,500 asylum seekers had withdrawn their name from the list uh, for, for, for yeah. seeking asylum. Yeah. Let me just interrupt you for a second, because I want to hear from Stephen on this as well, because at the end of the day, Stephen's got a legal uh, nose uh, that I wish to explore in the nicest possible way. I mean, it seems to me um, that to try to copper bottom any kind of legal framework which prevents lawyers from challenging it is a hiding, absolute hiding to nothing. You know, I know plenty of lawyers, they will challenge anything they can challenge. And this government is not clever enough, it seems to me, to, um, to, to put into law any sort of bill which can be unchallenged, can it? I think, I mean, look, that, that's a fair point with anything. And when people think about law, I don't like them thinking about alien or difficult concepts. Think about it like Lego. Every little rule is a piece of Lego and we're building something out of Lego. And you can build something that looks beautiful and works or you can build something that doesn't work. And the problem with this bill, and I have absolutely no desire, I just, I don't care about the Rwanda plan at all. But, but what has happened is the political process has been constant compromise. And so the, the half of the Tory party that don't want any water carried in a bucket has has been compromised with. Mm. The half of the Tory party that do want some water carried in a bucket has been compromised with. And the, the, the result is the government has got a bill that creates a bucket with a hole in the bottom. And that's, so it, it just doesn't work. You tell me that it, work, it doesn't work. It's, it's not going to work. Right. This bill in its current state is not going to work. I could make it better. I mean, I don't mean to brag, Mike, but I could make it an awful <laughs> lot better than it is. It's not it, It's not beyond the wit of man when you're building out, because laws are only invented by men so, and, and women, you know, humans. There's not beyond the wit of any of us. And and you can make this better. It is, it is I think, absolutely hold beneath the waterline as it is. I just don't think it works. Yeah. So all the drama today was just 
very, very boring for me because I'm just sat there. Yeah. Just well, imagine I mean, that, that, that pretty, that, that's, a... that's pretty much what I concluded at the top of this show, that here we are watching this supposedly high drama and not actually caring about the outcome because we all know, Rupert, that the outcome uh, means not a tosh uh, piece of interest to anybody who's uh, who's sensible. And similarly, as, as Stevie could could make this law work, you and I could make the Home Office work. But nobody in in government seems to want to do any of that. No, Mike. I mean, I keep praying that Colonel Pride's going to make a return and purge Parliament. But um, <laughs> so far, my wishes haven't been uh, my, my my hopes and prayers haven't been haven't been rewarded. But no, I, I, I look. I you know my views. I think. Parliament, the civil service, the entire structure of our government is now unfit for purpose. And I think, you know, uh, and thank you very much for that, uh, that very clear uh, rendition. I totally agree. I mean, legally, it's, 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 it's something and nothing. It's like a homunculus. It doesn't work. So uh, I, I think what we've got to do, uh, Mike, is we've got to have people who are committed to serving the British people and committed to stopping the boats. Mm. It's not beyond the wit of man to do it. But if we are going to be worried about the international upsetting the international elite in doing so, then I don't think we're going to achieve our objectives. And it's going to go on undermining Britain as a place to live. And it's going to be acting clearly against the interests of the British people. And I, I think they will show that uh, in the in the next election if somebody doesn't deal with it. So I'm like you, I'm I'm, you know, common sense is just you watch those people tonight those schoolboys playing around and lawyers enriching themselves. I, I mean, we are not getting anywhere. And uh, it's refreshing to hear a lawyer explain it very clearly to us. But I'm not a lawyer, but I could quite clearly see that what Suella Braverman and, and Robert Jenrick are saying, they were the people empowered to make this work. If they don't think it's going to work, clearly it isn't going to work. And if we upset a few people internationally in achieving what we need to achieve, then tough, basically. But that is the problem, but isn't that it, is Stephen? Problem. I mean, because we do hear about law uh, internationally quite a lot. You know, you've got one side of the Tory party saying, well, we don't want you to overstep the mark and upset international law or break international law. Rwanda have even thrown their tuppence halfpenny worth in and said, well, we don't want Britain to engage in breaking any international law. But international law seems to be something that, that we ordinary mortals don't understand either because it depends on which country you're in as to whether you adhere to it, doesn't it? Yes, it does. And every single system breaks it. Every single system gets rid of bits of it that they don't like and don't work for them. And if you didn't, then it would be in, in control of your country. It would be a dictator over you. Um, what, one of the funnier things, one of the more sort of snorting moments today was an, an MP who, who asserted that they would vote for this bill because it didn't break international law. Now, I'm pretty sure that it does actually break some of our international <laughs> law commitments. I just don't think it does it in a way that works. Right. So it's just, so it's, and, and this is this is mainly the problem with the bill. It's like, well, we're we're going to purport to limit injunctive powers, but we're not going to limit final powers. So uh, I will stop you temporarily stopping me, but if you want to permanently stop yeah. me, I won't stop you. That oh. doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Also, waving a white paper at some um, you know people smugglers in the channel who are making a million quid a day and saying, look, what you're doing is against the law, young man. But it's hardly going to stop them. It's like going up to the drug dealers uh, in the old Skodas driving around London saying, now, if you don't stop this young fellow, we're going to arrest you and put you in jail for at least five minutes. Uh, are you going to stop? Yes. And, of course, they're not going to stop because they don't care about the law anyway. 
No, well, there, there, is a, there is a myth that has persisted since the mid-90s that law can solve all problems. And if you just pass a law, all the problems will go away. And that's partly why we have far too many laws today. I mean, that's, Mike, I've slipped up. That's a political statement. I shouldn't have Oops. said that. That's all right. We don't have an awful the BBC. Lot, you'll be we fine. have an awful lot. Of, well, the BBC certainly wouldn't tell me <laughs> off because they don't know what the rules are. And the reason they don't know what the rules are is because they've got too many rules. So they, even the rules on impartiality, they've been buried in words. And th this is what we've been doing. We've just been passing law after law after law after law and we've buried any sort of clarity any sort of meaning so no laws alone won't fix this either there will need to be a proper enforcement process which nobody is currently proposing mm. and just to go back to i i've missed the name i'm so rude of of, of my fellow panelist i Rupert. do apologize but just to go back to his rupert's point um uh it it it, it is absolutely Right. Sorry, my rudeness. I've now forgotten the point I wanted to make. But um, the, the um, uh, uh, stress. Um, Rupert's point about the home office, or Rupert's about point enforcement. About... It's it's about the fact that if nobody is willing to enforce laws, yeah. they don't exist. Yes, and they that stop is... running around worrying about with the draft of the laws. If if they if you aren't willing to to stand up and have an operational process to enforce them, then they they really don't exist. And th this is this is the nonsense that we've got ourselves into uh, at, at the moment. And it, mm. you know, where we are today and the and the drama today is it is it? I mean, it, it's just really a distraction before we we get to, you know, a, a general election. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Because at the end of the day, Rupert, if you can't govern. You're not really a government, are you? In the same way, if you can't carry out... You say, too many laws, too many lawyers. I think that's 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 the problem today. I, I, I mean, think, law, I think we the law does have a habit of getting above I mean, itself every now and again. I think we but can... Yeah, then, look, Mike, I, I'm consistent on this. Uh, if we don't change the way in which we're governed, uh, you, you know, you've only got to look at the way in which... And, and I do a lot of things in business, in farming, in insurance, and, and I just watch the regulatory bodies. You know, I, I wrote a piece the other day about the way in which... Our regulators have hollowed out our stock market, which is now capitalised at 64% of what it was in, in, in 2007. Uh, you know, they are hollowing out Britain. HMRC is doing it. You know, the government says one thing. They are basically hunting people down, taxing them into oblivion so they're not investing. And actually, long-term investment is what drives an economy. So, look, there's so much wrong with Britain. And if the British people don't see it, I think they are beginning to see it. I'm very gloomy for the UK economy. I yeah. think we're going to get a real downturn. And I'm I'm standing for the Reform Party. I'm in the Reform Shadow Cabinet with some great people. We are real people standing so that real people can vote for an alternative outside the Westminster cesspit. And if they don't, then woe betide them. Uh, don't come crying on my shoulder because... Things are not going to be sorted out. And I think this Rwanda plan is a classic example of, you know, fiddling around the edges and not really meaning yeah. what you say. And most of them want to go from one radio car to another, spout rubbish, and a week later they've completely forgotten what they've said. <laughs> well, that, that isn't the way that you make a country great. No, so, it's uh, not. Uh, and uh, it's, simply, it's simply not governing the country. And we simply, at the moment, I, I would suggest, have a, have a government that can't govern. But thank you to both of you. Uh, Stephen Barrett uh, and Rupert Lowe, of course. Great to see you. Thank you very much indeed. We've got much more to discuss, ladies and gentlemen, but we also want to hear from all of you uh, because there's many, many things to ask you. We're going to be asking when uh, should we have an election? Should we not just have one as soon as possible? I think that's what everybody wants now in this country, uh, to try and figure out at least what it is that some of these people stand for. Also coming up later on... Uh, 
we've got some shocking video to show you uh, about some pickpockets acting incredibly brazenly just on the streets of London. And I know that at this time of year, many of you will have seen things, uh, you will have witnessed things, you might even have suffered at the hands of pickpockets or indeed uh, just have had something stolen. So we want to hear from you, 0344 499-1000. Make that call. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Coming up in a moment, uh, while we do speculate about an election, what could a future government look like? Could it be Starmer? He's tried to sell us his vision on a Labour government in a speech today, and I'll break it down. You don't want to miss it. Welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham. Rishi Sunak's Conservatives could record the worst outcome in the party's history at the next election by collapsing to as few as 130 seats, according to polling expert Sir John Curtis, who says divisions within the party over immigration are exacerbating the situation. It would also be a spectacular reversal of the 2019 election when this man won 365 seats. Over at the opposition, Sir Keir Starmer has accused the Tories of fighting like rats in a sack over the Rwanda bill instead of governing in a speech marking the fourth anniversary of that 2019 election. Have a look. While they're swanning around self-importantly with their factions and their star chambers fighting like rats in a sack, there's a country out here that isn't being governed. A country that needs leadership. If, in short, you want lower migration and higher wages, or even if you just want a government committed to economic stability, the rule of law, good public services, restoring Britain's standing, making family life more secure, and putting the country first, then I say again, this is what a changed Labour Party will deliver. Well, is that what a changed Labour Party will deliver? Here to discuss the Tory turmoil is Harry Fibson, Conservative Home, and former Labour advisor Kevin Meagher. Just before I, I come to both of you, um, we asked earlier on today, the audience, uh, amidst talk of a Tory rebellion, do you have confidence in the Prime Minister? Might not surprise anyone to know that nobody has. Uh, from Pete, who says no because no one voted for him. Gemma, uh, no, he's a people pleaser. He hasn't pleased me. Uh, Dan, call an election now. Let's determine who we want to govern us. Um, TF, not unless they stop migrants landing. Laura, he's absolutely clueless. I mean, it's incredible. Um, let me come first, uh, Kevin, to you, because, you know, Keir Starmer doesn't have to say much, but he does have to say something, I suppose, soon about the migrant problem, um, even as the Tories are, are messing it all up for themselves. It does. I mean, it's an extraordinary situation. We've got a government that's coming apart at the seams. I mean, we, you know, we're seriously having a conversation today about whether Rishi Sunak might survive the day or might survive the weekend. And would he, would he have had to quit if he'd have, he'd have had a big rebellion on this on this vote tonight? You know, we're 12 months out from a general election. For have, To have a governing party lose all internal coherence, all self-discipline, all focus and all, all loyalty as well, Loyalty, of course, used to be the Tory party's secret weapon, Lord Kilmuir, a former Tory Lord Chancellor, said in the early 1960s. You know, this this used to be their, their, their way of governing for year after year and decade after decade. But it's an extraordinary turnaround. Four years to the day that Boris Johnson romps home with an 80-seat majority and Labour is absolutely eviscerated. Um, worst election results since 1935. And here we are with, with Keir Starmer sat atop a kind of 18 to 20-point opinion poll lead, which doesn't look like it's going anywhere soon. The Tory party, the third prime minister um, in, as, in, as, in, as, in as many years, with no direct mandate as one, one, of, one, of, your, one of your um 
one of your correspondents said there a minute ago. Um, you know, it, they're in a real, real mess and they're going down in flames. And I suspect Rishi Sunak, who is, by all accounts, a very hard working, very diligent man, clearly, and a very intelligent man. Um, I think he thought that, look, if I bring a bit of rigor, I bring a bit of kind of clarity and some hard work to some of the problems that, 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 that the country faces, I might start to get a result, but nothing is working. Transport doesn't work. The economy mm. doesn't work. You know, public services doesn't work. The NHS doesn't work. Nothing is working. People feel that in the street. People people are now sort of starting to, I think, settle on a view that says, we've given you a fair crack of the whip, mate. You're not delivering. It doesn't look like it's going to change anytime soon. So we'll look at the other guys instead. And perhaps they think that Labour's been sat on the naughty step for yeah. long enough, and it's time to give them another crack at the whip. Yeah, absolutely right. I mean, I don't think there's anyone that I've heard ringing into my show now for the past two years who said anything like um, we're going to stick with the Tory party, we're going to keep voting for them. Uh, almost all of them say I've voted Tory all my life or I voted Tory in 2019, I'm not going to do it now. But we're going to ask for all of you out there listening because we want to hear from more of you. Has anything changed? 0344 499 1000. Will you still consider just to keep Labour out voting Tory? Uh, but let's talk now uh, to Harry Fibbs. I mean, Harry, um, how did it get this bad? I mean, Kevin's right, isn't he? Suddenly, four years after winning an 80-seat majority, nobody says this much, but it's down to 56 for a start, which is a pretty extraordinary failing, number one. And Rishi Sunak doesn't seem to understand. It doesn't matter how much he thinks he's doing. Uh, on the streets of Britain, people think nothing is working. He's going to be judged by results. And we're going to see, uh, the, I think the legislation probably will go through now. I think probably the House of Lords will uh, vote against. It's very and optimistic with, of you. With this reasonably clear majority in the House of Commons, I think the Commons will, oh, there'll be some ping pong and they'll push it back and the, and the legislation will come through. And there's a division really in the Conservative Party between optimists and pessimists as to whether it will be um, strong enough to get those um, fights out to Rwanda but I, I think that there's a decent chance that will happen. And that if it does happen, if we do have that happening on a substantial scale, it will be a deterrent. I suppose the Conservatives are united and saying that anybody who comes to this country illegally should not be allowed to stay, that we can argue about how generous we should be about allowing refugees in. We can argue about whether it's advantageous uh, economically to have a certain amount of legal migration for particular skills or people on particular wages. But what should be absolutely clear is that uh, for any independent country, it's got control of its borders and that anybody who comes here illegally is not allowed to stay. Now, I don't think the Labour Party has got that clarity, that resolve. So in one sense, the Conservatives are divided about means to that end, uh, but but they're but they're clear on the on no. the objective. I, I, I would say I'd have to disagree with Harry. Harry, Harry, yeah, sorry. I'd have to disagree with you completely there because I don't think after 13 years of Tory rule, uh, when in 2019 uh, there was only 200,000 people coming here legally, uh, and there's now nearly a million people coming here legally every single year, you can say with any absolute surety that a Conservative government does not encourage mass immigration because it clearly does. We're talking about the legal side of it, and that's all happened uh, in the last four years. And so, you know, it's not true to say that, that, that everybody in the Tory party agrees because clearly plenty of people in the Tory party think we should import mass numbers of people from abroad. I'm just talking about illegal immigration. Yeah, it doesn't matter, I, 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 I think that legal, I think legal immigration is, is, is much too high. Because of Brexit, we, there's no alibi. There's no decision uh, that, that the government can decide about how many... Um, legal immigrants uh, come in. So far, the decision has been to make it very high. There's now 
uh, measures being being taken to, to, to cut it back. I, I mean, I think that it's it's been much much too high for, for for too long. But that's but that's we've got control over. That's because of um, the Brexit. But the point about the illegal immigration is that nobody, I would hope, would would say that. However, you know, however liberal or however restrictive we we choose to be, we can't have people coming in the country illegally and being able to stay. I don't think anybody can stand up and say they support illegal immigration. And the point is that the Conservatives are at least arguing about how can we deal with that? How can we um, sort that out? And I t- But I think that there's a, there is a, not just about um, immigration, but more generally the, an argument about international law and a tension between do we say that we believe in democracy and that Parliament must decide, we're an independent country and Parliament decides what laws we have, or do we say that uh, we're subject to international law and increasingly bizarre interpretations of international law and human rights saying, oh, well, uh, let's allow prisoners to have the vote or let's interpret human rights in the most bizarre way. And people from the United Nations or the um, European Court of Human Rights um, coming and coming and uh, telling us what we should be doing or whether we say, well, no, we're going to we're going to refuse to to recognize that. And that is uh, a, an argument not just in the Conservative Party, but more generally about uh, what, it, what it means to be an independent, self-governing, democratic country. Yeah, that's true. But as Kevin says, you know, the party's literally tearing itself apart uh, over this. And it's a bit like complaining about having a broken window pane when you haven't got a door. You know, there's people coming in the door. Don't worry about the window. Kevin, um, do you think there should be an election now? I think, I think in, in a sense... From Labour's perspective, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter whether there's an election in, in the kind of April or May window or, or it goes into it goes into the autumn. I don't think anything is going to dramatically improve. I mean, I mean, I think when you're in government and your back's against the wall, you try and play for time. So logically, I think they will try and push towards an autumn election or, or, even, or even, of course, we've, we've had a precedent last time in, in, in a December election. Mm. But I think it just starts to look desperate. And, and I think, you know, there, there comes a point with the government where it, it just runs out of road, it runs out of energy, it runs out of ideas, it runs out of good luck, it runs out of plausible people. We've seen, you know, you see the same cast of characters year after year, it does breed a bit of contempt. And, you know, when, when you know, as, as James Callaghan once, once described, once that sea change starts to happen in, in the public mood, there's not an awful lot you can do about it and, and you know British political history tends to show that you know that government's in office for a long time after about 13 years um you, you know the, the game is up really the jig is up I mean that was true of new labor um it was true of the Tories in the 50s and the early 60s it was very nearly true of, of course of the Tories in the the 80s but John Major managed to pull off that that spectacular election victory in, in 1992 shortly Shortly thereafter, everything, of course, went wrong for yes. five years, and they got they got booted out in, in grand style. But but there's not an awful lot you can do when things are things are going against you on every single front. There is nothing that seems to be working. But if I, if I just may, I mean, the extraordinary thing for me, just in terms of political tactics about the migration issue, is is the government is having clearly some success with with reducing the boat people coming across the English Channel. It's down by I think a quarter or, or a third. It's about a third. Now. Yeah. now, now you know, to push it down any harder becomes very, very problematic. The big issue, and the issue that they are talking about in the dog and duck, is the big number, the 745,000. Yeah. That's the big issue. And they could do an awful lot there, I think, to bring that down and get the credit for that. They're chasing their tail yeah. with Rwanda. They're chasing their tail with the boat people. Yeah. Well, listen, Kevin, I'm going to get you on a lot because I'm going to start asking you some much tougher questions. But we're out of time because I want to know exactly how Labour would do that. Uh, but we'll come back to that another time. Um, Harry, give me a date for an election. Let's make a bet. When do you think it's going to be? 
I think that it will be, I think it'll be late. I think we're maybe looking at a, 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 a year's time, maybe not quite, maybe, uh, you know, maybe October, November okay. uh, next year. What we, we, he, he needs to, um, he's in the last chance saloon, Rishi Sunak, and he needs to start delivering some conservative policies to get those conservative inclined voters back on board. Absolutely, he needs to get um, the, the flights going off to um, Rwanda. That's crucial. But also, we need to look, look at the conservative agenda on cutting tax, cutting spending, cutting bureaucracy, fighting crime, uh, boosting home ownership. These traditional conservative themes that have been rather forgotten about, you know, a year, you can, you can get quite a lot done in a year. It's still absolutely possible to... Uh, Recur, you know, to, to to restore a sense of direction, uh, and he's got time to do it. But there needs to be radicalism and determination, and then anything's possible. Well, you're a very much more optimistic man than I am, Harry. But I thank you for that, and Kevin as well. Thanks very much indeed, uh, Kevin Meagher, their former Labour advisor. Uh, this is the Independent Republican Mike Graham. Don't forget, we do need to hear from you because coming up, uh, I'm going to be telling you a bit more, a little bit more, anyway, about Keir Starmer uh, because he says he wants to get Britain building again. He wants to take back the streets. He wants to switch on Great British Energy. He wants to get the NHS back on its feet and tear down the barriers to opportunity. Can he do that? You call us and let us know. 0344 499 1000. You can text the word talk to 87222 as well. But also coming up, just to get off the subject of politics, because it can be a little bit all-encompassing, Drew Barrymore's interview with Oprah Winfrey has been called clingy, creepy and clinge. Clinge? No, cringe. I'll show you why. Uh, give us a call too. 0344 499 1000. Don't go away. Welcome back. You're watching The Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Now it's time for Taking the Mic. Oh, to be a grown-up living in Hollywood, it must be so mind-expanding to be able to do whatever you want and not feel at all like a complete fool. The showbiz world is so shallow that you literally couldn't drown a fly in it. Uh, for the latest exhibit, ladies and gentlemen, I bring you Drew Barrymore. You know, the formerly troubled child star who made such an impact in the brilliant Steven Spielberg extravaganza, E.T. Who could forget her as little Gertie, the girl who understood the alien best? And now that Christmas is around the corner, you'll no doubt have another chance to watch it. But Drew is all grown up now and she's got her own talk show. Doesn't everyone in Hollywood? And being American, she's won all kinds of awards. She does, however, have a very odd style. One that I don't think I'll be adopting here at the Independent Republic. This week, she had an Oprah Winfrey interview. Uh, have a look at this. And I mean, as you watch it, she's stroking her like a dog. And there are dogs all around the studio, roaming around the set. And she's kind of talking to her audience. She's basically explaining why the audience gets such a big look in to all of these kinds of shows. And she realises that Oprah Winfrey, in fact, is amazing. Now, as she looks across, um, it looks like they were even cringing at her interview style, right? Because when it comes to invading other people's space, Drew is the new queen. She's holding hands. She's not letting go. Uh, she's stroking her. A lot of her viewers said they were creeped out, even as they exchanged lovey love about how much they spent time with their audience. Now. Here's what Drew said. I love people. I love every human being on the planet. I'm fascinated and everyone has a story and every person is exceptional and interesting. And it is so fun to be literally able to get to be a conversationalist at work. It's the coolest thing in the world. 
Blimey, elite level American TV sports. Pass the sick bag. I mean, can you imagine me doing that? Yuck! What are you doing? Get off me. That would be taking the mic. I feel slightly traumatised by that, but uh, but never mind. Uh, lots of you have been getting in touch, and you can have your say, of course, on all the socials, at Talk TV and on the phones, 0344 499 1000. Um, it's the new touchy-feely me. Uh, so let's hear from a caller now, John in Northampton. Hi, John. Hello. Hi, what do you want to tell me? Oh, I was just saying, no, no, I think I sent you a text and said, don't worry too much about what Keir Starmer thinks today. Did a flip-flop by tomorrow. <laughs> I think he decides his policy when he's walking across the Zebra Crossing. Yes. So he's like Abbey Road, you know, he sort of walks and just said, maybe yeah. I will, maybe I won't, no, maybe I will, maybe I won't. Yeah. It's a bit like hopscotch. It depends no which one he gets to at the end as to whether he actually agrees with it. That's a good point. I like that, John. I like it a lot. Well, we've already called him the snake charm. We've called him Captain Flip-Flop, Captain Hindsight. We've got plenty of names for him. Uh, you're watching the Independent Republican Mike Graham. Coming up in the next hour, Harry and Meghan's Archie Well Foundation is in the red after donations fall off a cliff. And Gary Lineker's been voicing his political opinions over Aranda on Twitter again. We don't care, Gary. Don't miss any of it. Good evening. You're watching the Independent Republican Mike Graham. We're on talk, on TV, on radio, online, and of course on your smart speaker. Tonight, Gary Lineker faces yet another backlash for getting involved in politics yet again, this time taking a swipe at a sitting MP. Harry and Meghan are in the red, with the Archibald Foundation's donations dropping so far now, they're making a loss. And Extinction Rebellion snowflakes are being offered free climate change stress therapy. We're going to call it Greta Syndrome. Gary Lineker's in trouble again. The BBC uh, are talking to him about tweeting his political views. But if he was ever to stand for Parliament, would he get your vote? I'd be pretty amazed if anybody watching this show would vote for him. But get in touch with the show on all the socials at Talk TV and on the phones, 0344 499 1000. Calls will cost the national rate and we'll be taking more of them coming up. Now, later on in the show, we'll be bringing you a first look at tomorrow's front pages. Before anyone else, we've got an exclusive look at the Sun newspaper. And in the Sun newspaper, obviously, they've done a big spread uh, on Rishi Sunak. Rebels rattle Rishi. Not a bad headline. They're basically saying the right abstaining crunch vote and they warn they are ready to axe the bill. And, of course, uh, the vote was this for 313 against 269, a majority of 44. But the main... I suppose, aspects of it for many of the right wing of the Tory party was that they didn't vote against the bill, they abstained. And there's also a little line on that uh, spread about Keir's boat plan because Keir Starmer actually said uh, that he might consider uh, processing people who were seeking asylum in this country offshore, which is something that the uh, Labour Party haven't really said officially up until now. Um, but we'll come back to more of that. My panel returns later on in the show. Uh, we'll look at more stories, uh, both on the front pages of the papers and inside as well. Uh, but let's talk about uh, them. You know who I mean. Because it looks like time is finally running out for the Montecito Massive, the Duke and Duchess of Netflix, the High Plains Grifters. We've got lots of names for them. That's right. We're talking about Harry and Meghan. Why, you ask? Because the truth is starting to seep out of those well-upholstered limousines, those multi-million pound private jets, those glitzy parties and all that charitable work 
And the news is just in. The Archibald Foundation, the charity set up by the Social Climbing Champions of 2022, is running out of road. Donations to the charity are down this year by $11 million. And it's now in the red to the tune of over half a million pounds. The truth of the matter is that people have just stopped giving them money. And their profit of $9 million from 2021 has now completely evaporated. The only man left smiling in the whole deal is the couple's right-hand man and boss uh, of the Archibald Foundation, James Holt, who has managed to obtain a 280% pay rise of £133,000. Well done, that man. But tragically for Harry and Meghan, all these figures have been made public because they have had to file a tax return in the US of A. And they're desperately trying to shore up their support at this critical and difficult time. The shameless pair have released a video describing the impact of the charity so far, which apparently employs five people for six-figure sums of money. And they've shared various clips of their good works just one day after William and Kate put out their own family video. The clock is now definitely ticking on the grifters, it would seem, as America realises what we realised a couple of years ago. They're only interested in their own narrow little world, rubbing shoulders with the rich and famous and milking their royal connections for money. Thankfully, it looks like that might all be coming to an end. Hasta la vista, Harry. Harry! 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 Joining me now to discuss this is the BBC's former royal correspondent and uh, very, very well-read royal expert, Ms Jenny Bond. Jenny, welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham in the evening. It's a far more glorious time to be talking to you. Um, this is not great news for the old uh, uh, high, high plains grifters, as I'm calling them, is it? Uh, yeah, I think you've uh, you've put it all very well. A little bit harshly, maybe. Uh, yes, obviously, it's very bad news for the foundation. Um, it is in the red for the past financial year, but it does have cash and assets. We're told of some, I think, six point six million pounds. So it's uh, it's not bust. It's not gone broke. And there are some unaudited figures for this year, twenty twenty three, which will be filed obviously in about a year's time, which suggest that uh, donations have gone up a little bit again, probably to around. Four million pounds. Nothing like it was at the beginning. This is absolutely true. A dramatic fall away. Um, and the donations that were given in the financial year um, when that's just gone, when they got about two million pounds, uh, largely came, almost entirely came from just two donors. So um, yeah, it's it's looking it's looking rather shaky, to mm. say the least. Well, I think that's right, because I don't know how uh, much of a suspicious character you are. I'm quite a suspicious character, and my, my points are sort of about who would be donating the money. And I do wonder, when I saw these figures, I wondered if the large donation that hasn't come this year was actually from Harry, uh, and whether one of the two large donations this year was actually from Harry, because, you know... It would be madness if it wasn't from Harry, in a way, because if you set up a foundation and you're as wealthy as these guys are, you'd probably put some of your own money in, wouldn't you? <laughs> you're very, very naughty. You really are. <laughs> um, I, hadn't, I hadn't thought of that. And, I mean, Harry's often pleading poverty, isn't he? He said he's oh, yeah. cut off by his family and didn't have enough money. I think we should actually point out that the foundation has done some good work because in this impact report that's come out 25 pages long, um, they, they do say that they've helped a lot of Nigerian girls, for example, about 2,500 Nigerian young girls with menstrual products and um, health help, and that they gave mental support um, after the traumatic earthquakes in Turkey and Syria. 
Uh, they've given money to the Halo Trust, which is the landmine campaign that Diana um, was involved with in Angola. Right. I was there with her. So uh, there has been some, some very good work, but perhaps the business is not run quite as, uh, as efficiently as it might be. Well, this is the trouble with charitable organisations, and we know it all the way from, you know, Save the Children, Oxfam, all the way down to, to maybe smaller charities, that they've got a bill for their salaries, uh, salaried staff of, say, five or six people, of over 600,000 quid. Um, you know, that's an awful lot of money. If you're giving money to charity, you don't expect so much of it to be going uh, to people who work there. But unfortunately, I'm not, I'm not singling them out for that, but it's, it's the kind of way of the world, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's big business, charity, the charity world. I, I, I've learned that over the years. I think the real question here perhaps is, um, is it because the, the brand Sussex is not working anymore? That's right. what's being said everywhere. Um, there are rumours awash that um, possibly her talent agency, Megan's talent agency, is going to drop her, right. um, that their brand is becoming a little bit toxic, uh, there's a lot of negativity. And, you know, in La La Land, it's all about positive vibes. You know, it's, it's Barbie world, isn't it? Yeah. So when you can't get in, start getting negative vibes, it, you know, it doesn't impact too well, perhaps, on um, those involved, in this case, Harry and Meghan. Yes, exactly right. And what about the timing of this particular video? Because Kate and William um, had a lovely little spread in the papers yesterday, or this morning actually in some, uh, oh. of their little Christmas kind of um, uh, get-together where they're giving out presents to people, to underprivileged children, and, you know, emerging really very much as, as the kind of the, 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 the king and queen of the future, everybody's favourite royals. I mean, she's done an incredible job, I think, Kate, as has William. And the fact that they haven't risen to any of the kind of bait that's come from either Harry and Meghan or Omid Scobie, I think has put them head and shoulders above um, Harry and Meghan. Yeah, you know, I always try and think the best of people. I really do. I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I mean, this perhaps is one coincidence too far. This uh, video uh, Harry and Meghan put out coming just a few hours after that lovely, very charming video of, yes. the, of George and, and Louis and Charlotte um, at, at a baby bank doing their little bit. I mean, it does seem extraordinary. I suppose you could argue perhaps that Harry and Meghan put out their flashy little video because these bad mm. figures were coming out to do with Archwell. That is conceivable. Yeah. But it is one more... Uh, attempt. It looks like you know one more attempt to upstage um, the the whales is, uh, and it doesn't look good. Yeah. It looks it looks snide and unpleasant. And it really doesn't look good, does it? When you get Omid Scobie, whether they will make out that he was not given their blessing or otherwise, you know, for him to um, be embroiled in what can only be his own scandal of his own making, first denying that he'd put any names into the book manuscript at all. Uh, they come out in Holland, in the Netherlands, then suddenly that gets pulped. They have to re-edit the book. He then admits to having put them into another manuscript. Whether or not they gave him permission for that book doesn't matter. It's kind of damaged them, hasn't it? Um, it, it's a mess and it's un an unsavoury mess. And a, a pretty important PR expert has been quoted as saying that uh, he feels that the brand Sussex has been badly damaged by mm. this and that Meghan, although she, her people, we don't hear from her, her people protest, they had nothing to do with the Omitsgomi book. Nevertheless, she seems guilty by association. Yeah. That's the view of one PR expert. And I, I think it might be quite a current view.
Yes, I think that's absolutely right. Well, we shall see how they uh, uh, approach the next 12 months, but I don't think it's looking great <laughs> for them. We shall see. Jenny Bond, great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Um, after the Sussexes uh, released a video showing off their charitable work, uh, we asked people who's winning the PR battle between Harry and Meghan and William and Kate. Uh, and I'm afraid it's bad news again for uh, Harry and Meghan. Kelly says, Winger and Ginger are nowhere near. Uh, Jay, Catherine and William, of course. I live very close to Hollywood and they are finished. Um, and ums says, there is no contest. Love and integrity, honour and service win every time. It's almost as if you were describing uh, Gary Lineker. Moving on. Uh, he's been at it again, by the way. After signing a letter requesting the government abandon the Rwanda plan, he took aim at Tory MP Jonathan Gullis this morning. Um, we talked about this yesterday, but here's Jonathan Gullis's response on Talk TV today. If they can't debate with you politically, they start to insult you personally. I do actually think there's a potential breach here of the social media guidelines that Gary Lineker has signed up to, which says that an individual politician should not be insulted personally. And sadly, Gary Lineker decided to do that. So I have written to Tim Davey, the director general of the BBC, to look into this. Uh, and as I say, well, I'll wait back for his feedback. But it's just very sad that these so-called celebrities, the woke karate, the elites of this country, seem to think they understand how to govern the country. If Gary Lineker is so confident he could do such a great job, why not stand and run for Parliament? He's very welcome to run against me in Stoke-on-Trent, North Kidsgrove. And Gary Lineker, of course, who hails from Leicester, uh, decided to respond thus. He put out a tweet saying, could he do it on a wet Tuesday election night in Stoke? Doesn't seem terribly impartial, does it? And it's almost as though he's now pointing a stick at everybody who has been critical of him and making sure that the BBC feels even more uncomfortable. And so when Jonathan Gullis there says he's written to Tim Davey, uh, the head of the BBC, uh, the Director General, it's embarrassing for the BBC. Joining me now to discuss it, former Top Gear presenter Steve Berry. Steve, very good evening to you, sir. Evening, Mike. I mean, we were talking about this last night on the show and I was speculating that there can only be one reason why Gary Lineker is doing this. He wants to get out of his contract. Because, I mean, he's really, he's really poking the bear here, isn't he? Well, you do wonder why Jeremy Clarkson did punch that Irish producer, don't you? <laughs> Was it all about not getting a hot meal or had he had a better offer under the, uh, under the table from Amazon? Yeah. People need to remember, though, Gary Lineker is not employed by the BBC. You know this, Mark. Uh, you know this, sorry, Mike. It's, it's never worked that way. They've yeah. always liked to keep the talent at arm's length. And I've looked it up. He is a freelancer. And one of the reasons that all the TV companies, not just the BBC, you know, all the ones I've worked for, I've worked for Discovery, Channel 5, Channel 4, Sky, they keep the talent at arm's length because they're loose cannons. You know the way it is. There's staff who are the time servers, keep their noses clean, keep their heads down, do their time, collect their pension. And then there's the talent who are given to doing and saying random stuff like he's done. But the good thing about them being freelancers, it's much easier to get rid of them. Yeah. But that's the point. The difference here, it seems to me, is that Gary Lineker is treated by the BBC as a special case. Because all you've got to do is look at what happened over the last few days, right? He signs a joint open letter uh, with the likes of Brian Cox and a few other lovies, right? Which is apparently, according to the BBC, fine, because it wasn't on social media. But then he goes even further because when he gets criticised for it, he goes on social media and starts having to go at his critics. Now, according to the guidelines the BBC have given him, that would now be against what he was supposed to have done. So it doesn't matter whether he's freelance or not. He's now breached those guidelines. And I reckon uh, that he would have been told that by Tim Davey. Yeah. I, 
obviously he'll have had a phone call. And the thing is, I was thinking about this. I thought, you see, recently, this is interesting, a friend of mine, my oldest friend, um, quite a famous artist, Michael Brown, he's had an exhibition here in Manchester right. that was financed and uh, put together by Eric Cantona. Michael did a very famous painting, if you remember it, of Eric Cantona called The Art of the Game. Yeah. And the subject of the exhibition was art and sport right. and when sports people get involved with politics, mm. right? Yeah. And I thought, is there any point? And then it just occurred to me, would match of the day suffer if it didn't have a presenter? I mean, when they say, you know, why not just why not just say, look, Gary, we can't see eye tie. Why don't you go off to whatever the new sports network is called this week? Because yeah. it seems to change its name every every season. Right. Uh, why don't you just go off to them and we'll just put out the highlights? I mean, would you miss a presenter? I can see why they have presenters on live football because they need somebody to introduce it and somebody to yap at half time. But on the edited highlights, do they actually need those highly paid presenters? I don't know if they do. Well, do you know, the night that uh, he didn't appear because he was suspended and everybody else went out in sympathy with him, I mean, I know that it was probably a one-off and a bit of a special event, but it got the highest ratings of the whole year, you know. But actually, yeah, I, and, was I was, and I was one of those who watched it, because I've stopped watching Match of the Day because I can't stand the kind of simpering and the sort of the, the knowledgeable and the knowing kind of nudge-nudge, wink-wink stuff between him and Alan Shearer, and I could do without it. Um, but I would have been more likely to watch it if he's not on it, if you know what I mean, and somebody who wasn't just trying to be clever all the time was doing it. But I, I thought with, I mean, the commentary um, games that they showed without commentary, that was weird. You definitely still need commentators. Oh, yeah, you absolutely still need commentators, but I don't think you need the opinions. And I'm sure that at some point when Lineker and Shearer and, and his ilk took over from the likes of Mark Lawrence and Alan Hansen, yeah. who I thought was the best pundit yes. the BBC have ever had, yeah. when they took over from those guys, it was almost like, yeah, you're the old guard. Yeah. Well, guess what, Gary? My son, who's in his early 20s, doesn't remember you ever playing football right. or Alan Sheila ever playing football. Yeah. You're the old guard now, mate. Yes. So I would be watching my back if I you. Hey, Mike, maybe he knows he's past his sell-by date yeah. like an old packet of prawn crisps yeah. left at the back of the shop. Plastic <laughs> sell-by date, Listen, pal. It's a, great, it's a great theory. Maybe he's already been told they're letting him go at the end of this season and he's going to try and make it look as if he got fired because he was too outspoken against the Tory party. Yeah, but to give them their due, this system of employing people like him as a freelancer, because I looked it up and, and Lorraine Kelly came up as well because... HMRC don't really like this system that works no. in television where people who seem to be employed are actually have freelance status. Right. And as you know, there's been a bit of a kerfuffle behind the scenes with this. Yeah. And what Lorraine Kelly seemed to be able to claim when she appealed was that the person on telly isn't her. The person on telly is Lorraine Kelly, the yes. TV personality, right. and she's Lorraine Kelly, the person. Mm. And maybe that's what Lineker would say. He would say, there are two Gary Linekers. There's the guy on the football show, and then there's the guy in real life. They're two separate entities. And the guy in real life is a lovely lefty, and he wants the freedom to speak his mind on all manner of subjects. The guy on the football programme 
is another Gary Lineker, and he's not going to express a political opinion. But they've been dragging politics into football willy-nilly for the, how long now? For the, for the last sort of 15, since the premiership was started, yeah, yeah. with all sorts of campaigns, which are for sure are very well-meaning, but they do drag politics into football. There's no doubt about yeah. it. Well, there isn't any doubt about the fact either that Gary Lineker has a very successful set of podcasts going out at the moment, um, which involve people like Alistair Campbell and Rory Stewart, both of whom are anti-Tory people to their very bones. I mean, even though um, to, uh, Stewart was actually a Tory MP. Because um, there's no way that Gary Lineker spouts all of this anti-Tory stuff on his own. He's literally fed it a bit like um, Gary Neville is, by Andy Burnham, he's fed it all by Alistair Campbell. I mean, how the hell would Gary Lineker know, for example, that Grant Shapps had three different names that he used to run three different businesses in the past? You know, why would he attack people uh, for things that they'd said in the past? He doesn't strike me as somebody who reads the newspapers avidly and remembers everything that every politician says. He's, he's, being, he's being cranked up by Alistair Campbell. Well, is he preparing himself for a career in politics? What do you think, Mike? Does Lineker know that his time's up as a pundit yes. because it's too far now for his playing career for a lot of the viewing audience to rem remember him as a player? And there's a whole load of new, younger, better-looking pundits coming through who the kids can actually identify. Well, I say the kids, I mean anybody under 35 yeah. can actually identify with. So maybe he wouldn't be the first sports person to... Uh, transition into the political realm, realm, would he? So maybe Lineker, all of this is because he's lining himself up for, uh, well, I don't know, I was going to say whose job, maybe uh, Captain Flip-Flop's job. What do you think? <laughs> well, um, he's better looking than Keir Starmer. Uh, he's just about as vacant between the ears, I suspect, but that's another question uh, which we haven't got time to get into. But listen, uh, thank you very much indeed uh, for talking to us. It's a great pleasure to go to Manchester, of course, and speak to Steve Berry uh, every single time we do it. Thank you very much indeed. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham, and you better stay watching because we'll be taking your calls after the break. 0344 499 1000. Calls will cost the national rate. And also, there's a sickening new shoplifting trend you need to know about. And we've imported a load of muggers. It's all coming up after this. Welcome back. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk. Lots of you have been getting in touch. You can have your say, of course, on all the socials at Talk TV and on the phones, 0344 499 1000. Let's hear now uh, from a caller. John is in West Lothian and wants to talk about Rishi Sunak and um, Keir Starmer, the snake charmer, as he became known last night. Uh, John, very good evening to you. Good evening, Mike. What can I do for you? Well, um, Rishi Sunak, first of all, um, he seems to be uh, an accountant. He is, you know, one uh, basis, you know, one and one, uh, two, end of story, can't think outside the box, has no personality, that can't relate to real people. And when have you ever heard of an accountant that's got a sense of humour and can adapt? That, <laughs> well, that, you absolutely my... don't want an accountant with a sense of humour, do you? You want a very, very boring and dull plodder, plodder of yes, a person but that, but uh, to make sure that they don't miss anything. Yeah, but that's absolutely useless for a politician who wants to relate to the British public. Um, so that's my view of him. Uh, yeah. Keir Starmer, well, what can one say? The man who wanted to keep us in Europe and spend millions supporting the bureaucratic uh, nonsense of an organisation yeah. that's never been audited, uh, that wanted to promote uh, 
Jeremy Corbyn as Prime Minister, who is, you know, so anti-British it's not real. Yeah. So I've come up with an idea, the best Christmas present that Keir Stammer should get. Yes. Flip-flops. Flip-flops. Well, he can buy some from Tory uh, Party Central Office, I think. They're selling them, aren't yeah, they? He flips here, he flops there, but he never has a decision on anything. Sails no. with the wind. Yes. There's no, no principles. Uh, will do anything to get himself elected. Yes. And, you know, who can trust the man? Who can trust the man? Well, I don't think you can. I mean, I quite liked the suggestion from one of our other callers tonight who said he makes his decisions like a man walking across a zebra crossing um, and it changes depending on what colour he finishes up on, you know, and whether it's a yes or a no. And it feels like that. You know, he's now saying that he might, in fact, uh, consider using offshore processing centres for um, illegal migrants. But nobody in the Labour Party has ever heard him say that before. He just said it today. No, no because if he thinks there's votes in it, he'll say whatever he thinks there's votes in. Yeah. It is, quite, absolute, it, is quite, it is quite terrifying, isn't it, that these are the two choices we've got. I mean, I suppose it's better than Biden and Trump, but it's not much better. Well, well I don't know. <laughs> well, at least we're not stuck with old Humza useless and his uh, bizarre foreign oh, policy uh, manoeuvrings. Oh, don't, get me start, don't get me started on it. <laughs> You know, he spent thousands going out to Dubai, flying to Turkey, pretending he's a, he's a prime minister, pretending he's got uh, foreign policy, he's got none. He's setting up all these dummy little foreign uh, offices around yeah. the world. And, and honestly, in Scotland, if you, if you come from Scotland, the place is falling about our ears. Yeah. Yeah, no, I know, absolutely, it's a nightmare. John, thank you very much indeed. Um, we've got much more to do. A couple of these uh, for you. Should Gary Lineker stick to football? Andrew says he knows he's untouchable, can say anything he likes about any subject without any kind of reprimand. He knows that the BBC haven't got the balls to terminate his contract. He's had a very charmed life. Um, Isabel says, let him talk. It's a democracy. If you want censorship, go and live in North Korea or China or Russia. That's a bit harsh. I, mean, I don't really want to move to any of those places. Um, I'll tell you what we're going to do now, though. Coming up to Christmas, because you'll get a lot of this on this show between now and Christmas, because I'll keep saying coming up to Christmas, um, there is apparently uh, a bad situation afoot because we're facing a nightmare before Christmas, according to a lot of law enforcement people. We're going to be showing you now, over the course of the next couple of minutes, a series of videos of shoplifters who are now so brazen and muggers and pickpockets that are just doing this in open now. This is in the middle of what looks like Leicester Square, People are just walking around behind other people. Now, I don't know about you. Um, now, I've been lucky enough not to ever have been pickpocketed. People have tried to steal things from me before. I've had things stolen from a house, from an office, from a car, you know, but I've never had anybody literally follow me around in the street and just take something out of my pocket and walk away. And then, of course, there's another uh, couple of videos of, of shoplifters now who are so brazen. They're literally just walking into a store. Here's a woman who's decided she quite fancies getting a couple of winter coats uh, but doesn't really want to pay for them. So you'll see her sort of walking fairly slowly and in no way in a hurry, doesn't look as if she's in any way suspicious, uh, just picking things up uh, off the racks, holding them in her arms, and then just suddenly walking out with them. And apparently shortly thereafter, um, she actually then went and stole a load of booze from a supermarket without anybody stopping them. We know there's a, there's a craze going on. We know that um, the police are not really doing anything about it. But if you're running a shop in this day and age, it must be absolutely horrendous, absolutely awful. So. Um, do send us your stories, and if we haven't got time to get you on today, we'll get you on tomorrow and possibly the next day because Christmas shopping is something that everybody uh, is doing at the moment, and uh, it can't be very helpful uh, if you're being, standing next to somebody nicking everything.
Absolutely awful. Anyway, I'm now joined by my charming panel. Uh, two returning, one new one. Deputy Political Editor at The Sun, Ryan Saby, broadcaster and writer Emma Wolfe. And now joined by Rafe hadel Manku, historian uh, and member of the New Culture Forum. Guys, um, just looking at that shoplifting thing, I had a sort of shoplifting in reverse nightmare this week where uh, I'd bought a couple of bottles of champagne for Christmas, but they came in a box. And when I got them home, didn't open them, right? Then opened them just the other day, only to discover that they hadn't taken the security thing off the top, right? Now, I'm not trying to make out like I'm some kind of champagne socialist or anything, but it's for Christmas, right? <laughs> so I would bought these in London and taken them to Sussex. I had to bring them all the way back to London. Luckily, they didn't give me a hard time, but I didn't have the receipt or anything, so I'd trawled all the way back through the credit card receipt, so at least I knew I'd had the credit card receipt. But if they said to me, how do we know you haven't stolen these? I'd have been screwed. There's probably a trade in this, isn't there? People, I would imagine so. Taking things from shops. Yeah. It feels like some shops have actually built into their profits mm. or their, their their losses that people. There's so much of our stock is going to be stolen. Yeah. It's got to that stage right. now. Mm. Well, you go to a lot of shops now, and a lot of the stuff that you would normally see on display isn't there. And they've just hidden it away. And if you ask them, they go, oh, it's because people just keep stealing it. And the thing is, the more you get rid of people at tills and all of that, the, the fewer staff there are in shops. Yeah. So if you've got one person at the till, they, they can't challenge people who just walk in, fill their rucksacks with beer and, yeah, anything that's expensive, right. they can just walk straight out. Yeah. But I want to actually know what is the purpose of security guards today? Because we've seen so many videos, even of these, you know, Pippa and, you know, Cassandra from Extinction Rebellion emptying milk. And uh, security guards just standing by watching this whole thing, you know, play out in front of them. Well, that's eyes. because they're not allowed to do anything. Isn't but I think it? we need to we need to have a serious discussion about empowering security yeah. guards to actually make arrests, right. train them in this sort of a thing. Although you don't want them but doing, you, you wouldn't do that in America because you know full well they have armed wouldn't. security guards over there. But also they come out from behind the the, uh, the till with a baseball bat, start beating you with it, you know, <laughs> if you do that. But I mean, you also wouldn't want them to take on um, the, the 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 mantra of what that um, McDonald's security guard did the other day when he was spraying the homeless guy's sleeping bag. He's now been fired. But speaking of Extinction Rebellion, I'm glad you brought them up. Um, apparently they're now being offered um, therapy because uh, worrying about the climate if you're in Extinction Rebellion is, is something really to upset Sorry, you. but we need therapy for yeah. dealing with these guys, these ridiculous Extinction Rebellion protesters. Apparently they, they might be experiencing shock, disorientation, fear or powerlessness uh. at the reality of the climate change emergency. Yeah. Did Didums. But yeah, these are like, you see these people, guys. don't you, who are ridiculously, I mean, certainly not by me, I would never invite them on this show, but invited onto other uh, TV stations, and where they scream at the presenter, why are you not out on the streets with us? You know, why are you not doing something? It's an emergency. Why are you working? And you're kind of going, all right, darling, calm down. What's wrong with you? They just have no sense of proportionality. No. And they, they have to understand that there is a, there is a route to... Yeah. Don't we all want to get to net zero eventually? No, but, no, no, no but I don't want to get to net zero eventually. I don't care. Because every time I ask... The reason I say yeah. that is not because I'm a curmudgeonly old git. It's because whenever I ask somebody what happens when we get to net zero, they can't answer. I've not yet found one politician who knows what net zero means or who knows whether we're, our lives will get better or who knows how much longer the earth will exist as a result of it. So I'm not doing it and I don't want it. But, Sorry. You know, but, but part of the therapy is also to cut to actually help them get over the stress of protesting. Oh, you yes. think, well, the best yeah. way to do that is not to jump out no. in front of cars. <laughs> and that's Don't why. glue your hands to the road. No. And maybe your heart rate will come down a bit. Yes. You sort of have to wonder, how would these snowflakes have actually coped during the Blitz? Right. Sitting in an Anderson shelter with a V2 And also, don't complain about being arrested if you're actually <laughs> continually breaking the law. Or try living like a normal person, and then you'll need therapy right. and stress relief. The or thing or that I found most amusing about Just Stop Oil when they all got given exclusion orders from London 
it proved that none of them lived here because they all live in Tunbridge Wells, you know, in very nice big houses, and they get driven to the station by mummy and daddy in the Volvo. Well, there was a study out by Scientific American on this climate therapy nonsense, and they actually found out that whereas most things in this world now afflict people of colour more, this afflicts white people more, and you have to wonder why. And I'm sure, actually, it, it afflicts middle-class people from Tunbridge yes. Wells particularly badly, it is, actually. Because it's no, it used to be Mr Angry, didn't it, or Colonel Angry from Tunbridge Wells. It's now sort of Ms... Um, Phoebe... Trustafarian. Trustafarian. You know, we've got millions of pounds in the bank, but we're worried about the climate. Um, well, I'm assured there's no taxpayers' money was spent on that therapy. Once that happens... Yeah. Think, you know, and there's a new trouble. one. There's a new Greta on the block. There's a little... Oh, is there? I saw a 12-year-old. I think she's an Indian girl. And oh, yeah. she's obviously gearing up to be the next... Well, there's money in them, Dara Hills, aren't there? I mean, if you want to become the new Greta... Because now Greta's 20 or 20-something. Yeah. She's getting a bit old. And you so can't, yeah, you can't keep going, old. look, she's giving up her school. Uh, no. Maybe that's what we should train our kids to be. Yeah, well, instead of footballers. A, a three-year-old boy. What about my three-year-old boy? He could maybe be trained yeah. up as the next Greta. You could make him out to be some kind of seer. Hysterical you know? about no, the fact that it's no, raining. But he could, no, but he could have a special power. Yeah. You know, that every time he touches, you know, his teddy or something, it tells him something. You yeah. know, normally if you did that, you'd have your child taken away from you. But if you said it was for climate change, you'd be you'd be fine. Yeah, they'd be like, "Yeah, this is brilliant. He's absolutely amazing. We've never seen anything like him." It's a really good idea. Um, now, I'm having watched a couple of U.S. debates. I'm reliably informed that Vivek Ramaswamy's name is pronounced Vivek, but I don't know if that's just American. But they say it rhymes with cake. Um, there's an extraordinary uh, piece of. Um, audio I'm about to play you. I don't know whether you know about this. Um, But this was when he was involved in some kind of um, X stroke Twitter conversation. You know, they have these Twitter meeting places. Have a listen to this and see what you think it sounds like. Gentlemen, I have to yeah, go. Yeah, I, I, I just want to be sort of, uh, yeah, exactly. I want to be clear about my position. I'm, I'm super pro-human, and I mean all humans. Uh, you know, humans in America, humans in Somebody's Africa, got the same Asia. And everywhere else. Phone open in the bathroom. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, Vivek. Vivek, that's that's your phone, Vivek. I'm not able to mute you. Vivek. Uh, <laughs> Go ahead, Elon. Um, Sorry about that. So, um... <laughs> well, I hope you feel better. I now. feel great. Thank you. Well, um, I think we could all hear what that was. That was Vivek going for a pee. Was it it would that, seem that famous scene from Naked Gun where that where this happens. No, was, was that... okay. Well, I don't remember yeah, Naked yeah, Gun that no, well. I, I think there was a scene like similar to that actually. But, right. uh, well, I had a professor who had that happen to them oh, really? during class, going off with the microphone. Yes, or, but, you know, it's one way to drain the swamp. Um, uh, well, that's true. Many, many people have said, you know, that he's been, ta- <laughs> he's, been taking, he's been taking the pee for a long time. So yes. that maybe actually he really is. <laughs> I mean, it is one of those things that people don't know about, isn't it? When they put a microphone on you, you walk away somewhere. Mm. I remember being told a story of, of, a, of one of the big American networks and a, a woman newsreader who was having an affair with somebody, you know, in, in the building. Uh, she walked off into the, into the toilet during a break and started telling her girlfriend all about it and how horrible it was because the guy was married and, and it was broadcast to the entire studio. Which, you go course. back to Gordon Brown, don't you, in, in yeah, 2009. That dreadful that election, woman. That, that, that bigoted, yeah, bigoted woman. woman yes. You know, thought the, the microphone was off. I think he's driving off from where yeah. he was. And it, the BBC, I think... And we had the one recently, didn't we, with um, the Education Secretary, Julian Keegan. Well, I wonder whether that was deliberate. She, yeah, well, I mean... Partially deliberate. She yeah. kind of knew everyone was around. It's not like the, the, the cameras are totally off. The microphone had been taken no. away. I don't know. She looked like she was being serious, though. Yeah, that she yeah. wanted everybody to say thank you to her for being such a brilliant, uh, you know, protagonist. Funny thing about Ramaswamy, though, to get back to the point of the man having a wee-wee, um, I was a big fan of his for about two days when he first came onto the scene. Yeah, he and then after a while, he just he? yeah. But about after about it was it was about two or three days. I realised he was 
really insufferable and just unbelievably smug but it's a about bit, yeah. himself and yeah. his life and how brilliant he is. And right. it's just, it's unbearable. I can't it imagine is. that for another four years like in the White It's a bit like Ron DeSantis, though, isn't it? I mean, Ron DeSantis started out really well and everybody went, he's the inheritor of Great the Trump hope. crown yeah. because he seems to have similar views and he seems to have similar beliefs and even more kind of moral standing, I suppose, in his, in his community. But then he just kind of went haywire. Mm. I don't know quite, quite what went wrong, but he kind of just went, you know, off to the side. Yeah. And now nobody wants to vote for him. Well, they both should have held their horses and waited until Trump wasn't in the running, I think. That's the problem that they both, they both have. Uh, Vivek actually makes a nice contrast, though, I should say, to Trump and to Biden in his ability to actually string a sentence together. And it's, <laughs> I think the Americans are just stunned that someone's actually able to yeah. speak in a coherent manner. Well, this is it. I mean, we've got Biden uh, tonight accusing Israel of bombing uh, Gaza indiscriminately. Uh, which obviously they d dispute and they say that's not what we're doing. And it's quite dangerous when the American president gets things like that wrong, isn't it? Yeah, and also on one hand, you've got the, the Israel situation. On the other hand, he's got to try and commit and get some money. Well, we'd, the UK would yeah. like him to get some money to Ukraine as yes. well. He's actually fighting two things on the foreign policy right. front. But how much does it affect the vote at home? It, I mean, they... Well, this is the problem. I mean, Americans have always been a bit more kind of squeamish particularly since Iraq and Afghanistan, about giving more money more. to the armed forces and putting American lives at risk. They don't really want to do it. And Trump got that right. Yeah. You know, unfortunately, when the pullout from Afghanistan happened, it was under Biden and it wasn't done very well. But the, the, but the public were very much behind not being there. You know, and David Cameron's been over in Washington DC over. over it was yeah. there last week but trying it's to as get as some support behind it. I have to say what, and I'm, I'm apologies to, to you and any other people who have covered it, but I've not seen much written about Cameron's visit to America. Have you? There was a, only the tail end of last week. Mm. Um, he went out, I think, he went over to Seattle for a conference, yeah. and then he went back to um, Washington DC to meet Anthony Blinken. Yeah, uh, yeah, it, it was quite. I think with the time difference, it's very late in the day, right. and yeah, it was it was covered live on some. Sort of that news man has been clocking up the air miles. Yeah. I know. I mean, you know, we all sniggered when he well laughed out loud when he became foreign secretary, mm. but he's certainly doing his job. Well, maybe Mrs. Cameron thought, you know, time to get you out of the house. And, you know, and it's a perfect get job. Get you out of the shed. Away yeah, from the, the shed. I just remember him in, uh, in, um, in Libya. Yes. He's always grandstanding. He, he loves being yeah, on yeah. the world stage. Yeah. It comes to he him very naturally. It, he prefers it if he's in a kind of a foreign country which is relatively poor, uh, that he can look as though he's the kind of the saviour of. Exactly. You know, Blair-esque and standing on the rampants and all that. But anyway, um, let's talk about the royals because um, The Sun has got a piece which has got a great headline. I can't believe nobody's thought of this before. Annas... Horribilis. I said it last week, so I'm claiming ownership of it. Are you claiming it? That's brilliant, because I hadn't that thought of it. That is weak. Horribilis. No, that is weak. I liked your joke earlier, but that is not a good one. <laughs> I think this is great. Harry and Meghan crowned biggest losers by Hollywood Bible uh, after being slammed for moaning and having written a whiny biography. And this is also on the back of the news that the Archibald Foundation is losing a bucket load of money because uh, nobody wants to give them anymore. Nine million pounds less yeah. in donations than last year. Well, do you know, my theory, as I said to Jenny Bond, is that he probably put that money in himself. Yeah, well, it's two big donors, so it yeah. could be He could be one of them. Those two, yeah. You know, because if you were trying to get a charity going and you had a load of money, you wouldn't want it to look as if you didn't get any donors. So you'd go, we better either get some of our friends to give some money, or maybe we should. But that's just it. Where are these super rich friends of theirs? Where's Oprah Winfrey? Where are these Kardashians they keep talking yeah. about being bosom buddies with? Where's right. Serena Williams? You know, money speaks louder than words, and they like to talk about these associations. Yes. But so when, when they're, they're very thin on the ground, and you think they want to help start up this... But this is from The Hollywood Reporter. The Hollywood Reporter is a very substantial, you know, news source in, in America, and also very, very well plugged into yeah. Hollywood and, and all of the kind of, you know, the and studios. And calls them the biggest losers. Yeah, and we're hearing <laughs> from, from, from uh, that part of the world that she may be being dropped by a talent agency, which is also huge, because if she doesn't have them representing her, even if somebody else picks her up, 
it's still a terrible, terrible thing to happen if you're if you're a celeb. Yeah, I mean, there's a guy in this piece by the, in the Sun, um, which who makes the point that equally the Duke and Duchess are still far from out. They're a magnetic couple whom the world is hugely interested in. I think, I mean... Yeah, but it's I'd not like Messel. But it's Toby. But it's not I don't Messel, have much but... time for the grifters of Montecito, but they are still box office. You know, they are still a magnetic... Not what they were, though, I don't they're think. Lo- they're but... sort of losers, but I know, but anything royal is kind of fascinating. Yeah, but that's the problem, because the, they're not. I think the big companies who were going to put tens yeah, of millions of dollars... companies are pulling away from them. Yeah, and instead of putting that sort of sums in, they're going to sort of half the sum or a quarter yeah. of the sum. I think that's kind of where they are. Yeah. Are these big companies getting... You know, ultimately, they've got a bottom line to yeah, look yeah. at as well. Yeah. Are they going to sort of invest Well, I mean, also, time? I mean, I was in America recently and, and the general view is, is that if you're that wealthy, you haven't got that much to moan about. Now, they could be wrong about that because they don't have... You know, in California, you can still be unwell because your mental health is affected by the fact that you're a billionaire yeah, and yeah, you yeah. don't know what to do with all the money. But, you know, generally speaking, ordinary people go, you're pretty well off. Stop telling Stop us mind. how awful your life is. And if, yeah. you, and if they are still magnetic, I'm going to put this to you, it's not metal that's sticking to them, it's something else. But how disappointed would you be if you're the royal? You, you trade on that currency of being linked to the royals, but you're being cut off year by year, yeah. month by month, and you can't really get back in. No. You, you know, there was talk of them trying to get an invite to Sandringham. Well, you can trade off but that But that was for a all driven bit. by them. By the, yeah, I mean, they yeah. did leave, but, but, right? And by yeah, the way, yeah, no, they exactly, did actually exactly. Mexit, or whatever exactly. we call but it. But that's why we've seen them trying to cozy up to the king with a phone call recently yeah. we had to talk of but their refusal to actually distance themselves from Omid Scobie, you know, their selfie stick in waiting, yeah. I think that has done them irreparable damage. And, I has. Think, and the whole idea of them putting... The, there was a video that was released, of course, of them showing that their success at Archwell, where they work for one hour per week, I remind yes. you. They're so actively involved in that charity. Uh, the reason that they brought that forward from January to the end of the year was to try to end the year on a high yeah. and convince people that this hasn't been an absolutely right. catastrophic exactly. year. Exactly. And they seem to have employed about five people... And the reason we know all this, by the way, which they must hate, is they've had to file a tax return in the US, which is immediately publicly available. Um, they only they only employ five people. I remember people have, have gone to the, the offices and gone, there's not many people around, it's very quiet. Um, but they're all making in excess of $100,000 a year. And the guy that runs it, James Holt, I think his name is, is their right-hand guy from, uh, from Kensington Palace. Um, he's given himself a 180% pay rise. So, you know, the guys running it are doing very well. Thank you very much indeed. They claim to have helped a few Nigerian schoolgirls. I've got a solution for them. If they went and made an announcement that we will disappear from public life if you all donate, they would rake in billions of dollars yeah. overnight. No, I think Harry needs to get back to his full-time job, which is, you know, what madly chasing British papers through the courts. Yeah, well, that hasn't gone I mean, well that for is this his week. full-time job. I mean, this week, this How week many has he down... got on at the moment? How well, many libel cases? Well, he did have he lost another four. 50 grand yesterday. Yeah. And then that was a sideline yeah. on the kind of the main job, which is pursuing the Daily Mail and everyone else. And also the Home Office. Responsible still, for wrecking still, his life. Yeah, he's still going after the Home Office yeah. for protecting him yeah. as well. And he's, he's wised up at least this time because the last time he had a court case for that, he came and went to the court case. Oh, yeah, that wasn't The first a good question, by, if we were embarrassed, was, sorry, I thought it was very dangerous for you to come here. You seem <laughs> to come here uh, for a court case. Uh, this time he didn't come. So he could say, well, I haven't come because obviously it's too dangerous. Even though he's out at concerts and parties and restaurants in, oh, yeah, in, it's in fine. California. In one of the most dangerous countries yeah. in the entire world where, where mad people have got guns and will shoot you. But it would be terribly like dangerous for him to come to this country. Yeah, exactly right. Well, we'll bring you more. Um, there's more Hollywood stuff coming, actually, because it's quite an exciting night for that, for showbiz. But, I mean, Ryan Sabie's here, so we've got to talk about politics a bit, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, some of the papers have gone ridiculously with this Sunak story. I don't know why. <laughs> uh, but you're watching Independent Republican Mike Graham. Hold on tight, uh, because I've got some good news uh, to ruin Christmas for the vegan bores in your life. And also, uh, more from tomorrow's papers, so you can stay ahead of the game. We'll be back after this. 
Welcome back. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. And now, it's time for this. The World of Work. Are you feeling guilty this Christmas? Are you wondering if you're doing enough to save the planet? Have you considered turning vegetarian to reduce greenhouse gases, substituting the turkey for a nut roast? Well, I've got some news for you. It's not worth it. Why? Because you'd only manage to reduce global emissions by between 2 and 5%. And that's if everyone in 37 different countries does it. So just imagine how little your virtue signalling will change. And you don't have to take my word for it. This information is coming from the United Nations, no less. That's right, the very people who are always urging the global north to help out the global south. Their new Food and Agriculture Organisation report has moved away from blaming food production for all the ills in the atmosphere, so you can order in the extra portions of Stilton, pigs in blankets and mince pies. Remember, all those ghastly people who told you meat was murder and that eating a chicken sandwich was likely to make the oceans dry up for future generations? Well, it turns out they were all bloody wrong. And there's no evidence whatsoever that a move away from a diet rich in meat, eggs and dairy will make any difference to the planet at all. All is not lost, though, uh, if you're a climate loon. As you were hearing earlier, Extinction Rebellion protesters are now being offered free therapy for climate change stress, just in case they need some help in these difficult times. Heaven help us all. Merry Christmas. The World of Work. And now, uh, with apologies to Emma Wolfe, because um, you are a vegan. And uh, listen, my, my condolences, because Christmas must be awful for you. What the hell do you eat? There's loads of food that you can eat that's not... Murder. Well, there's loads of things you can eat. <laughs> I mean, I can eat, you know, the piece of paper in front of me, but it doesn't taste very nice, and it's not like eating Christmas dinner, is it? I'm not even going to have this argument. All I right. can tell you a million and one things that you could eat that aren't murder. Okay, then. Um, Ultra-processed foods, robbing youngsters of the joy of eating, it says here on the front uh, of page, what is it, page four of the Times. Apparently, ultra-processed foods are hijacking children's taste buds and robbing them of the experience of learning to eat different foods. There's a new campaign going uh, with celebrity chefs, including Otto Lenghi, Kimberly Wilson, Hugh Fernley-Whittingstall. Uh, they've all written to Rishi Sunak to say that children shouldn't have to eat some of this rubbish. So what are they talking about? What kind, what well, kind I, just, of I just wonder whether it comes back to kids in, in schools and whether they should be learning about the home economics and, yeah. Yeah. you know, the mums and dads cooking for them. Mums, you know, do mums and dads have such busy lives? Yeah. They're just putting food in front of them at, yeah. at the end of the day rather than actually starting a meal, doing it from scratch. Yes. I think they're just relying on this... It is joyful, you know, sitting down at the table with your family and, yeah. and, and eating, and it seems like they've been robbed of it. Yeah, I'm just trying to work out what exactly they're saying they shouldn't be eating. Well, they're, to well, they're talking about the really, the really bland kind of, you know, samey, samey flavours, all quite high in sugar, right. salt, fat. I think they do have a point. It's a bit joyless. Yeah. But I think they have a point that a lot of stuff that is ultra-processed, you know, breakfast cereals, mass-produced bread, crisps, cakes, yeah. biscuits, really, they're just full of additives, salt and sugar, as I say, emulsifiers, preservatives. And they're not really, they're not real flavours. They're yeah. not real foods. Like yeah, OK, so they're saying they're, they're, they've got too and many... it's a particularly Northern European phenomenon and it's especially a British Isles phenomenon. Yes. You just compare the diet we have here to the diet in, in Italy or in Japan and what children get there. It is, it is having whole grain stuff, it's having food. You know, you can still have enjoyed the same sorts of or things. Right. Foods, but just without, without and, yeah, know, exactly. Flavors. I think it's, it's actually very important because, of course, habits start very young. And if you get kids onto this stuff when they're right. young... They'll be on it for Well, I always say, whenever we have arguments about, you know, how expensive it is to, to, to eat naturally, and I always say, well, it's not really. I mean, if you go to a supermarket, and I, you know, I, I, I'll make my, I grew up with my family making soup all the time, like vegetable soup, and you can just make it for very little amounts of money. You can buy vegetables, you can put them in a, in a pot, 
um, put a bit of stock in, and there you go. That's a meal, you know. And it, I make, was... it makes sense, as I say, in terms of the, the government should actually, you know, put all this investment in in those in these early years because then it saves all the health problems yeah. late, later in life. But I mean, my son's school when he was there a couple of years ago would be constantly banging on about how you weren't supposed to be eating unhealthily and you couldn't give them chocolate or crisps to take in, which I didn't. But you could buy in the school canteen one of those hor- horrific chocolate milk drinks. Which is about a thousand calories in a, in a in a single glass, and I said, well, "Well, why are you selling that? Oh, well, it's nothing to do with us. That's the catering company. Well, why are you giving them pizza? Well, it, yeah, you but know. it's the same in hospitals. It's the same in like yeah. the, the place where I go to swim in the swimming pool. You've got outside the thing. You've got this great big vending machine full of full of junk. Yeah, I yeah. Say crap. And speaking of schools, children are being pushed further down NHS waiting lists if they receive support support from schools for mental health problems. Apparently, there's an epidemic of such things. Uh, schools are saying they have to stand in for doctors and psycho uh, psychiatrists. I certainly have heard this from many friends of mine who have been trying to access, you know, um, psychological treatment for, for anybody under the age of sort of 18, of which there's quite a big need at the moment in, in Britain because of lockdown and everything else. And there's waiting lists that go on for forever. No chance. Yeah, I think that's the trouble. Is it, is it you know, where, where is it treated? Is it treated at school? Is it treated with the GP? Or do people have to go, you know, further into the NHS? Yeah. That sort of thing needs to... But no. we also have to question why there's a children's mental health crisis. Well, yeah. Right at a time when, of course, when they've have, they actually have a better lifestyle than anyone has previously. And this, of course, it's the, the doom-laden stories of the climate coming to an end and so forth. But, you know, Sweden, which is one of the world's most developed nations, mm. has one of the highest levels of child, child depression. Why is that? It's because at schools, they're constantly asking the children, are you depressed? Yeah, I think we're On a talking... scale of one to ten, how yeah. depressed are you? Yeah. So it's unsurprising when you're totally fixating on this, mm. uh, that you're going to have children reporting that they have depression levels, but... which may just be being in a bad mood on occasion, being, you know, not getting out, of the side, getting out of bed on the wrong side. And we need to ensure that we're not actually just misdiagnosing yeah. things. But also, is it a better lifestyle than ever before when children used to play out and you oh, sure. out in the streets? Yeah. Is it better well, social... that they're... Lo- that they're locked in their in their bedroom, staring at an iPad with right. the horrible world of social media in their faces yeah. all the time. That's actually not a better lifestyle. And well, of, I think and we had happy childhoods. Yeah, and some of the games that they're playing as well. Cue uh, all the gaming people getting in touch and saying, "Gaming's fine. There's nothing wrong with gaming. It's absolutely fine." Oh yeah, it's okay. I'll just run over a few prostitutes, shoot down some old people at and the age of like maximum seven. Maximum points on Grand Theft Auto. Brilliant. Yeah. You know, and we uh, mustn't underplay the fact that suicide rates among girls in particular have skyrocketed. Yes. And Professor Jonathan Heights done a big study in this and linking it to social media as well. Yeah, so there, is, so yeah. so that, so there, are, there are very genuine yeah, yeah. there, yeah. it has to be said. We should mention the Rishi Sunak story, I suppose, yeah. Ryan, just as a nod to you. Um, it's on, I mean, even the son of Splash with the, with the Royals, you know. Yeah. But Nightmare After Christmas, this is the way the Mirror's done it. Sunak sees off the Tory Rwanda Rebels for now. I mean, that's kind of I think, the view, isn't I it? think that's kind of the vibe tonight. I think he will sleep well tonight. I think he's really tired, you know. Yeah, he probably needs a good night's sleep, yeah. He had a long day at the COVID Because his COVID stuff hasn't made any news at all today, has it? No. No, no, I mean, yeah. I mean, he, he seemed to get through that relatively okay. A couple of pro plus. Yeah, and, he, and, he, and, he's, he, and he's, at, <laughs> he's at it again. Um, but I think those, that engagement with MPs just about gave them enough yeah. to not to vote against the legislation, but to abstain. And I think he's, he's kind of stored everything up. In but has he, year. Rafe, because you're new to this conversation, has he made any inroads with the electorate? Because, you know, I don't think anybody else is now going to vote Rishi Sunak because of what happened today. Exactly. Well, it's worse than that. This is the most stressful exercise in futility any prime minister could go through. <laughs> we, just had, we just had Keir Starmer on Radio 4 today 
saying that he would scrap the Rwanda deal as yeah. he came to power. Right. We know that the Tories are thinking about a spring election because they they know there won't be a single plane going off in the summer, uh, and there may be boats at their peak over the channel at that same time. So essentially, this whole thing is for nothing. Mm. It is, absolutely. Final story, diary exclusive Daily Mail, Mission Improbable. Tom Cruise dating an oligarch's ex-wife who's Russian um, and who's only 36, apparently. Former model, uh, Elsina Kairova. Good luck to him, is all I say. Yeah, there's some quotes and people are inside the, uh, the, the sort of nightclub, I think it was, where they were, and they were seen as being besotted and really? inseparable. So watch this space. It's extraordinary. His hair gets younger every year, doesn't it? If Amazing. any 60-year-old is going to date a 30-year-old, it should be Tom Cruise, who looks well, younger than so. anyone else. That makes a lot of sense. <laughs> My partner's 28, and I certainly haven't aged as, as well as Tom Cruise has. Well, listen, so I'm not going to begrudge um, him that. Very impressive. <laughs> um, that's all for me very tonight. Impressive, um, you've been watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Thank you to all of the guests, to Emma, to Ray, and to Ryan. Uh, I'll see you tomorrow night at 9pm. Uh, don't forget, this is Talk TV. There's nothing else like it. Good night. <laughs>